All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you here for our study on the book of Revelation. And just a couple of reminders that um, we are recording this class. And so if you have a comment, we ask that you would raise your hand so you can speak into the microphone. And the microphone doesn't project, so you still need to speak up, but it's for the recording. So it's just a weekly reminder um, of, of how to <clears throat> participate in the class. Um, we are now starting Revelation chapter 6. This is the beginning of the seven seals. Alistair last time, which was two weeks ago, went through chapters 4 and 5 which is an interlude which introduces the seven seals. So we are going to get through hopefully most of chapter 6 today, and, um, and we'll go from there. So why don't we have a word of prayer to start our class. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can study from your word. We ask for a special blessing now as we look at Revelation chapter 6 and the seven seals. And I pray that we would learn more that would help us to be ready for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> There's a lot that we could talk about with the seals. Um, as we look at where we are in the sequence of the book of Revelation now, we've had the introduction in the first chapter, then the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, then the interlude in chapters 4 and 5, introducing Jesus, who is worthy to open the seals. And then we get to the seven seals here in Revelation chapter 6. Now, let me just remind you briefly of the titles, the three titles of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. He is the faithful and true witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. So just as a reminder, Jesus serves as the faithful witness to the seven churches, most especially to the Laodicean church. Um, then he's the first begotten of the dead in the seven seals. You'll see why that's the case, because during the time of the seals, we see God's faithful are um, slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held. And then he's the prince of the kings of the earth and the seven trumpets. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So that just kind of gives you an overview of, remember, revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're trying to keep this Christ centered. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness of the seven churches. Now he's the first begotten of the dead in the seven seals. So as we go through this history and we see the persecution of God's people, we have the promise that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead, and if he's the first begotten, it implies that, will, that there will be many more after him um, that will be raised from the dead. So that kind of gives us an overview. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> one other thing to look at, um, Alistair talked last time about the four beasts. How many of you were here last time when Alistair talked about the four beasts in Revelation 4 and 5? So if you recall briefly, and this sets up the first four seals, the four, the four beasts are the lion, the calf, a man, and a flying eagle in Revelation chapter 4. And if you understand what the characteristics of these four beasts represent, 
and Alistair kind of already touched on this last time, but these four beasts are what we believe to be angels who represent characteristics of Christ. So they're focused on one aspect of Christ's ministry. So the lion represents Christ as king. The, the lion is the king of the animals, so to speak. The man obviously represents that Jesus came here to this earth as a man. The calf represents a sacrifice. Jesus was a sacrifice when he came here to this earth. And then the flying eagle represents divinity. So Jesus, of course, was God. And all four of those elements, as Alistair talked about last time, is what qualifies Jesus to open the, the book of the seven seals. The other thing that's interesting is that if you look at the four gospels, the four gospels have those four characteristics. Matthew shows that Jesus is king. Mark shows that Jesus is sacrifice. Luke shows that Jesus is a man. And John proves that Jesus was God. So the four gospels have the same characteristics as these four living creatures or these four beasts. Now it's interesting as we start chapter 6 that the first four seals are obviously opened by the lamb and we will see that but it's the first four beasts in the order of the lion, the calf, the man and the flying eagle. They tell John to come and see. So that gives us the idea that there's something about the characteristic of those beasts that's contained in the first four seals. So, just as a reminder, lion represents kingly authority, um, the calf represents sacrifice, man represents humanity, um, and then the flying eagle represents um, divinity. So, those four characteristics, look for those four characteristics in some measure in the first four seals. Now, just a refresher from when Al taught two weeks ago, what is the book of seven seals about? Now, if you remember, he read a quote, and if you didn't, if you weren't here, um, you can go back and listen to it on the recording, but it's from Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 7. Um, so Manuscript Release, Volume 9, page 7. And there Ellen White tells us that the Book of Seven Seals is a history of all the kingdoms of this earth. And um, so contained within the Book of the Seven Seals is a history of all the kingdoms of this earth. Now we're going to see that the parts of the of the scroll that are unsealed for us to to look are from the time of the first century um, to the second coming. But that's the part that's, that's unsealed for us to see. Now, the obvious reason then why Jesus is qualified to open this book, which contains all of the history of humanity, is because the four characteristics in these four beasts that he's He's the king of this earth. He came as a sacrifice. He was truly man. He came in our our fallen human nature. And he was truly God. Qualifies him to unseal or reveal to us the history of this earth. Because if it wasn't for him, that history never would have taken place. So now that I've set the stage, we're actually going to go into the seven seals. So let's look... um, And we're going to read 
um, verses 1 and 2. If I could have a volunteer to read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Raise your hand and we'll give you the microphone. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let's see. Let's see. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard um, as it shared the, no- uh, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Okay, thank you. Now, when you look at these first two verses, who is it that opens the seals? And this is the first one, of course, but who's opening the seals here? It's the lamb. Now, we know that Jesus is the lamb that was slain, and in Revelation 13:8, we're told that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is qualified to open the seals because he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And notice it says, one of the four beasts said, come and see. Now it doesn't tell us which one. Now how do we know which one of the four beasts this is? Alistair talked about this last time, but if you look um, in each of the next three seals, with the second seal, it says the second beast says, come and see. The third seal, the third beast says, come and see. And the fourth seal, the fourth beast says, come and see. So by logical deduction, it must be the first beast that's saying, come and see, to see the opening of the first seal. And what was the first beast in Revelation chapter 4? It was the lion. So the first beast in Revelation chapter 4, in verse 7, is the lion. So, again, the characteristic of the lion is that of um, a king, or kingly power. Now, when you look then at this seal that is opened, what does John see? He sees a white horse. He sees the one who sits on him has a bow. He has a crown, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, does this parallel a description of a king? Can you see the description of a king here in the first seal? You have someone who has a crown going forth to conquer and to conquer, conquering and to conquer. So this has kingly language. Now, the horse is white. This represents the the pure Christian church during the first century, the conquering church, the apostolic church, which took the gospel to the then-known world in their generation. Quite an accomplishment, and it's never been done since. And we're waiting for that to be repeated. So they had the power of the Holy Spirit. They took the gospel to the then-known world. They were a conquering church. They had the kingly power of Christ, there's a number, number of other things we could talk about, but um, you can go back and study this on your own. I'm hoping to get through most of chapter 6 today, as I said earlier. So here we see the pure church, and the time period of this is till about 100 A.D. Um, and then we get to um, the second seal, 
<clears throat> and this is verses three and um, verses three and four. So a volunteer to read. Actually, Chris, you had your hand up last time, so um, down here to Chris Carmen. Yeah, there we go. <clears throat> and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, "Come and see." And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Okay, thank you. Now, of course, the lamb, when it says, when he had opened the second seal, this is the lamb opening the second seal. And who is saying, come and see this seal that's been opened? It's the second beast. Now, what's the second beast? It's a calf. What does the calf represent? A sacrifice. Now, when you look at the second seal that is opened, do you see anything in this description that fits the picture of a sacrifice? You see the color red, as some of you have, have mentioned here. This gives us the picture of the persecuted church. And this parallels to the church of Smyrna, one of the two churches of the seven that did not receive a rebuke. Um, they were told, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. And here you see this concept of the promise of Jesus being the first begotten of the dead. He was our sacrifice. He died on the cross for us, but he was resurrected so that if we by faith die in him as many in the second seal did, we have the promise that as Jesus was raised from the dead, he's the first begotten of the dead, we will be resurrected as well. So you see this concept, the second beast is showing that there is this concept of the followers of Christ being persecuted. They are being killed. And this takes us to about 313, I believe. Um, to the year, or maybe it's 323. I forgot to look up the date, so forgive me. It's either 313 or 323. Do you have the dates, Chris? It's 323. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so this takes us to about the time period of 323. And then we get to the third seal. Curtis, you had your hand up. So, um, Curtis, if you could read Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Okay, thank you. Now there's a lot we could talk about here, but we're just going to hit the basics, um, and then you can go back and study this more further. But um, again, the lamb's opening the third seal, and it's the third beast that's saying, come and see. What's the third beast in Revelation 4? The third beast is a man. So in the third beast, we're going to see something that gives us a description of humanity. Now, now remember, the seven seals are a description of the history of this earth. 
So there's not a perfect parallel with saying, well, Jesus is like this, so then humanity must be just like him in the seal. No, what this beast looks at is it focuses on Christ was a man, but it's also looking at the characteristics of humanity as well. So don't get confused about, well, Jesus was a perfect man, so how come we're seeing such a a terrible picture of humanity here? Well, Jesus, yes, he was a perfect man, and he lived a perfect life in the midst of fallen humanity. And we see then um, a picture of fallen humanity in verses 5 and 6. Now, how is this horse described in the third seal? The first seal, we had a white horse. What's the horse like in this picture? It's black. Now, if how does that compare to white? It's the exact opposite. So you had a pure church, a conquering church in the first seal. So if this church is black, or if this seal is black, what does it say about the church? So it's the exact opposite of a pure church. It's become corrupt. Now this church, this is the period of the Pergamus church from 313 to 538. This parallels the Pergamus church. Now, it's interesting that during this period in history, this is when the abomination of desolation was set up with Clovis in France. You can study that um, out. You have the teachings of Balak and Balaam in the church of Pergamus. The word Balak means desolation, and what Balaam did was an abomination. So you have the abomination of desolation in the church of Pergamus. This is what gives its, its characteristics, char- character of of black. Now, there's one other thing that's important here. When you look at these balances that are in the hand of this um, black horse, the person sitting on the black horse, notice how they measure what they're selling, or, or how much? How much does the wheat and the barley and the oil that's being sold? <clears throat> how much does it cost? Okay, now what does a Bible, or I mean, excuse me, what does a penny represent in the Bible? If you remember the parable of, of the person who worked all day for, for his master and he received a penny at the end of the day, and a person who came at the 11th hour and he got a penny? Okay, a penny represents a day's wage. Now, <clears throat> I won't tell you how much I make in a day, it's probably not that much, but you know, it's it's not what it doesn't it's I'll, I'll tell you this I make more money in a day than the price of a loaf of bread okay so that just gives you and I think most of you who have a job make more money in a day than the cost of a loaf of bread does that make sense so far now pretty soon you might make about as much money in one day as the price of filling up your tank of gas but that's a different issue um, but the point here is that the price of a measure of wheat, which is about a cup of wheat, cost a day's wage, which is an exorbitant amount. It's a, it's a very high price. Now, wheat um, would um, represent what you use to make bread, and bread in the Bible represents the Word of God. So spiritually speaking, the... Word of God comes at a very high price during this time. 
and it gives you the idea that the reason why it costs so much is because it's so scarce. Usually when the price of something goes up like this, it means that the, the supply is starting to run low. And if you go to the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, we're told that there would come a time that there would be a famine in the land for the word of God. And this is when that time begins. And so we understand from history that it was the papal power that suppressed the scriptures. You can study that in the book of Revelation 11. The two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth and ashes for the 1260 years that it begin even before the 1260 years. So that just gives you this idea that there's a famine. Um, so try to think in, in biblical terms. So if a measure of wheat costs a penny, we're like, wow, that'd be awesome. I can go to the store and buy a loaf of bread for a penny. Well, no, let's think about it in biblical language. And in biblical language, a penny represents a day's wage. And a day's wage for a day's wage for a measure of wheat is a very high price. Okay, so we've done the first three seals. We've gone through the history um, of the first century through 538. Then we get to the fourth seal. Now let's have a volunteer to read verses 7 and 8. Joelle, if we could give her the microphone. Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his, and his name that sat upon him was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Okay. So here we have the fourth seal. The Lamb, who is Jesus, opens the fourth seal. The fourth beast says, come and see. Who's the fourth beast? This is the flying eagle. So the fourth beast is the flying eagle. And what does the eagle represent? So the eagle represents divinity. or So it, it looks into the divine character of God. Um, so if you look then at what's being revealed here in verses 7 and 8, how would you be able to make a parallel between the divinity of God and what we're shown here in verses 7 and 8? What power is being represented in verses 7 and 8? So the, we're told, someone said that the Catholic Church is being represented here. Now, as we look down through the history here, up through the third seal, took us through 538. So yes, the fourth seal is the beginning of 538. So if we have the papal power being described here, notice that power was given to them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. I mean, that's how they persecuted the saints during the Dark Ages. Um, How then does that... Why would that be correlated with the fourth beast, which um, looks into the divine character of God? Well, the short answer is, is that the papal power claimed to be God here on earth. They claimed to, the Pope claimed to be the vicar of Christ here on this earth. If you look at Daniel 7.25, he shall speak great words against the Most High. 
and so forth. Second Thessalonians 2 um, says that he sits in the temple claiming to be God, and yet it's the exact opposite of who God is. Um, so here you have a power that's claiming to be God, and yet is the exact opposite of who God really is. So this is the history of the earth, and these four beasts, they look into the character of God and those four aspects of his character, but when they look into the history of the earth, they also show us how man tries to subvert and pervert God's character and his his different characteristics. So here we have then in the fourth seal, it's a pale horse, and actually... In some translations, like it's a pale, sickly green horse. So a very just sick looking horse. And this represents the time of history that the church was in in its sickest or worst condition up to that point. So this takes us to the time of when the Catholic Church persecuted the saints They were persecuting with the sword, with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Now, something interesting happens in the fifth seal. And I'd like someone to read Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation, okay, we have a volunteer down here. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were uh, should be fulfilled. Okay. Thank you. Um, If you look at what's happening here, we no longer see the four beasts, so we've moved past the four beasts. We have here the fifth seal, and we have... Symbolically speaking, because we understand the state of the dead, that the dead know not anything, so just had to throw that out there. We see the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, crying, How long, O Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood? Now, who are these people, symbolically speaking, crying out? These are martyrs, and specifically from what time period? Okay, it's from the time period of those who were persecuted during the first four seals. Now, I heard someone say the 1260 years, and that is correct, but um, God's church was also persecuted by pagan Rome um, in the, the period of 100 to 323 during the church of Smyrna. That was the persecuted church that was promised, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So you have those who were persecuted by pagan and papal Rome as represented by the souls slain under the altar. So, we have a comment down here. Wait, wait till you get the microphone, please. And if you could speak up so everyone can hear you. Uh, 
when you talked about the souls of the dead, and mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we know the state of the dead, of course, uh, a parallel is in Genesis when Abel was killed by oh, yes. Cain. His, mm -hmm. uh, God told Cain, uh, you, the blood of your brother is creeping from the earth. Very so, good point. Um, that's all. Thank you, Roger. For those of you who may not have heard, she pointed out that when Abel was killed by Cain, God told Cain that the blood of Abel cries out from the earth. So a very helpful point to show that this is symbolic language, that the blood of these souls who were slain is crying out from the earth. Millions of people, I think I've heard estimates that 100 million people were slain by the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages. Um, that's really not something that they can just kind of brush off and say, oh, we're sorry about because um, it really is bad, and they, they still are who they are. Um, but <clears throat> we also have the souls that were persecuted by pagan Rome, which I talked about. So here we have pagan and papal Rome persecuting the saints, killing them for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And the question is rhetorically asked, how long till you judge and avenge our blood? on them that dwell on the earth. Now, the very fact that this question is asked suggests or shows that God will judge and avenge the blood of those who were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. So the question then is, who is God going to judge and avenge? He's going to judge and avenge those who persecuted the saints, which happens to be pagan and papal Rome. Where does God accomplish that judgment? You see it in the seven trumpets. First four trumpets judge western Rome, western pa pagan Rome. Fifth and sixth judge eastern Rome. Seventh tr trumpet is a judgment on spiritual Rome, which begins with the investigative judgment. That's where God judges and avenges his saints. And it begins... That's why the seven trumpets follow the seven seals. So the seven seals show the persecution of the saints here on this earth. Then you have the seven trumpets. That's God's judgment to judge and avenge those who were slain. So the persecution of the saints does not go unnoticed by God. He comes back, starts with Western Rome. They fall by 476 AD in the first four trumpets. Then you have the fifth and sixth. And then the worst judgment is the third woe, the seventh trumpet, and it culminates in the seven last plagues. So pa papal Rome, which is still alive at the end of time, has the seven last plagues to look forward to for persecuting the saints. We'll get into that. Now we have a comment down here, if we could get the microphone. <clears throat> the book that was opened is the Word of God, and it's the Word of God that reveals the history of man mm -hmm. that we're looking at today. Mm -hmm. And there's a corollary, corollary between the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And if you take the uh, time frames and match them and put them on a chart, you'll see that the trumpets and the seals <coughs> uh, act simultaneously mm. as they're being uh, carried out in their uh, historical aspect. Mm -hmm. And you only see that if you chart it out. Yeah. Yeah, it would be, um, and we won't try to do that here, but go back and put the dates together. We've mentioned the dates here, but there is certainly a correlation there. Now, 
<clears throat> just moving on here. Now notice they were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. They asked, how long, O Lord, till you judge and avenge? Notice verse 11, it says, white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, so they're still sleeping, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now, notice this. Here we have the idea that here you have those who were slain during the time of pagan and papal Rome, but the idea is given here that more people, their fellow servants and brethren, will be killed as they were. So this is going to be in the future, beyond the time of the persecution of pagan and papal Rome during the Dark Ages. And I might add that some Adventist scholars believe that the fifth seal began in 1374 when the Protestant Reformation began, when John Wycliffe, who's known as the Morning Star in the Church of Thyatira, is mentioned. And this is when a protest of the papal actions towards God's saints finally was given voice. And that takes us um, forward towards the end of the Dark Ages. But it's interesting, remember from Matthew chapter 24, it talks about there's this time of trouble since, since, since there never was or great tribulation, and except those days be shortened, only the elect would be saved. It gives you the idea here in the seals that this time was shortened so it didn't go all the way to the end of 1798. <clears throat> but if you move on here, <clears throat> it gives you the idea that God's people in the future will be, um, will be killed as well for the word of God and the testimony which they hold. And that takes us to um, later in the book of Revelation. We'll come back to that. Now, I want to get through these dates here. In the sixth seal. So we, we've come through the first five seals. We see that God's people were persecuted for the word of God and the testimony which they hold. We see that there's a promise of God judging and avenging their blood. And we see that that judgment is carried out in the seven trumpets. And then the seals, which are a, a revelation of history, give us some very interesting frames of reference with respect to historical dates. So notice in verse 12, and I'm just going to go through this quickly here. Verse 12, it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. So now we're to the sixth of seven seals. And lo, there was a great earthquake. When was that? That was 1755. That was the great Lisbon earthquake. So that's the beginning of the sixth seal, is the Lisbon earthquake. So now we're... Notice that's still during the Dark Ages, so that's why I believe that um, the fourth seal doesn't go from 538 to 1798 because the sixth seal begins in 1755, so it wouldn't make sense for the fourth seal to go all the way to 1798, if that makes sense. So I think the fourth seal ends in 1374. That's when the fifth seal begins. fifth seal goes from 1374 at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation to the beginning of the sixth seal, which is... 1755, the Great Lisbon Earthquake. And then we have, the sun became black as sath cloth of hair and the moon became as blood. We just had the 228th anniversary of that. That was May 19, 1780. So we just passed that 12 days ago, 228 years. So 
then you, as we march along in the sixth seal, then we get to 1780, May 19. And then verse 13, the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth through untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. That's November of 1833. So that takes us all the way down to 1833 in earth's history. And then verse 14 the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. When does that happen? The That's the second coming. So where are we in earth's history? We're in between the falling of the stars, which was 1833, and the second coming of Christ, which tells you something. Jesus didn't plan to wait so long after 1844 to come. His idea was to come shortly after 1844. You have 1755, 1780, 1833, then 1844, he's going to come very soon. But something's happened. Now, Revelation chapter 7 tells us why he hasn't come yet. And we'll get to that in our next study. But the the short answer is the reason why we haven't gotten from 1833 or the falling of the stars to the second coming, is because the servants of God have not been sealed in their foreheads. So the servants of God, in Revelation chapter 7, the servants of God, the 144,000, have yet to be sealed. When they are sealed, then you will see um, the heaven depart as a scroll. And in verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? I just want to make a quick point here. When Jesus comes... It's described as the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. Now, many people have created a misconception about God and about Jesus and the way he's going to come. They believe that when he comes, everyone will basically be saved and that you can do whatever you want and God's grace will save you anyway. But we have the idea that when Jesus comes, for, for some people, probably for many, it's going to be the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. And in fact, Ellen White even says the righteous ask the question, who shall be able to stand? And there's this moment of awful silence. Now, <clears throat> the question then is, and we're probably close to being out of time, but we've gotten through the chapter, so that's good. The question is, who shall be able to stand? And if you look at Psalms chapter 24, now this is familiar to many of us. So when Jesus comes, who will be able to stand? And if you look at Psalms chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, it says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And notice verse 6. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face. So there will be a generation known as the 144,000 who have clean hands and a pure heart that when Jesus comes, they will be able to stand because they've been sealed in their foreheads 
So when the great question is asked, who shall be able to stand? It's the 144,000 who have purified their minds and their hearts. Their actions are clean and their heart is pure. It's not just an outward obedience. It's an outward obedience that stems from an inward heart cleansing. And those are the people that will stand. It's not just an outward righteousness that's, that covers us while we're still sinning. It's a righteousness from Christ that cleanses from, cleanses from within and produces an outward transformation as well. And so, if you wonder, will I be ready when Jesus comes? What do I need to do to be able to stand in that great day when the heaven departs as a scroll and everyone's running for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them? What will enable you to stand so that when you see Jesus, you will be able to stand? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the generation that will stand in that day. And so God has been waiting ever since 1844 for a generation who will have clean hands and pure hearts. And too often we know what is right, but when push comes to shove, someone makes us mad, we fight back, we don't act like Jesus, we reveal our own human nature and and people are left questioning, well, they, they say they're a Christian, but they sure don't act like it. And so we need to do some heart searching. You know, it's easy to be a Christian when things are going well, but what happens when things go bad? What happens when you get tested, when the fire gets turned up? That's when your true character is revealed. The Lord allows us to pass through those experiences so that his character can come into our hearts, so that we, be, we can be cleansed. And so my challenge to you today, and I think we're basically out of time, but my challenge to you today is let's be that generation that will somehow bring an end to the history of this earth. It's been a long time since 1833, and we're still waiting for the scroll, the heaven to depart as a scroll, and God's looking for that generation. So let's be that generation. So next week we will study about the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. You won't want to miss it. We want to be part of that group of people. So why don't we go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you've called us to be as a people. We ask for your forgiveness and how we've contributed to the delay of your second coming. We know that you want to come soon and that it wasn't your purpose to wait so long. And so I pray that we would surrender our lives to you, that you would work out your life in our hearts so that we would have clean hands and a pure heart. Help us to be like Jesus. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.